So you already have these tools where kids are using things in these ways that go beyond it's cheating. You know, they're going beyond use my, for my homework. It gets to the classroom. What you have is teachers that are either unaware of these tools that have heard about it, but never used it, or that they believe it's going to stop. You know, I've talked to a teacher that said she was terrified their students would stop learning because of giving away all that thinking to the AI. You've got teachers that think it's the most important thing that students could possibly learn because the future of work is going to be that. And then you have a whole bunch of people that'll get to it eventually. And so you have these two disparate groups that are experiencing these in, in, in ways that are quite different, like most of what happens with kids and teachers in general, that it creates this real complexity of trying to figure out how best to support those interactions. Welcome to Humans of AI, where we tell the real stories of those who are building an AI or are making use of it in their daily lives. Today's guest is Amanda Bickerstaff, the co-founder and CEO of AI for Education, an organization aiming to help teachers and schools unlock their full potential through AI by providing workshops, trainings, tools, and resources to educators and policymakers. If you want to catch the latest episodes of the Humans of AI podcast, make sure to subscribe. And check out my free AI newsletter, Chaos Theory. And find me on social at Alex Chowmander. Now, without further ado, here's my talk with Amanda. All right. Hello, everybody. I'm Alex. I'm joined here with Amanda, the founder of AI for Education, an organization looking to equip teachers, educators, and really just the, the broader public around AI education and how these two things will evolve over time as AI gets more prevalent, gets better, and this new wave is, is happening. Um, welcome, Amanda, to the Humans of AI podcast. And I think first off is we'd love to hear just more about you, just your own background story, your origin story, if you will, of how you came to be, how you even got introduced to to AI. Great. Well, hi, thank you for having me. Um, my name's Amanda. Um, and so I started my journey as a, as a public school teacher in the Bronx in the small school that no longer exists. So it was a, a very um, high complexity, low income school. Um, I was 22 years old. I was a alternative route to teaching uh, teacher, meaning a part of the New York City teaching fellows. And yeah, I got in and the only living environment or biology teacher in the school and it kind of was off on my own a bit and and it was something in which I've you know until this last job where I was a CEO of an ed tech in Australia having never been to Australia before then it was definitely the hardest job I had until then and it was something in which I, I say this a lot now I wasn't very good at teaching when I started um, because it's not something that you just I, I don't know there's not a lot of natural teachers out there in the sense of being able to deal with not only like create great materials, but to be able to connect with students, to be able to understand their their needs and context, as well as to work within a pretty significantly difficult structure. And it um, was something that I definitely wasn't prepared for at 22, but it taught me a, a ton about myself and the need for moving past the classroom in terms of thinking about equity and education of like the school is a place in which learning should happen. We hope it happens, but there's so much that goes into learning that happens outside the classroom walls. Uh, you really see, especially in low-income areas. And so that was my kind of foundational, talking about origin story, that that really was my origin story in terms of everything that came after that work um, has really guided me to today. You know, I, I've had, I joke, I've had like every job in education, including like where I one time had a very, I felt like it was a de very Devil Wears Prada moment where 
<laughs> it's a board meeting for one of the jobs, one of the foundations that I was working for when I was in grad school. And they're like, it's someone's birthday, Amanda, go find a cake. And, you know, I had to like run around NYU trying to find a cake before there were smartphones. And so, you know, I've had just kind of every type of, of, of job. But over the last like eight years, I've been lucky to be building education, education technology companies and started to see on the other side of like what it means to actually build for an education ecosystem and, and make change within schools, hopefully positively. That led me to that role in Australia where we we started with essentially surveys around student perceptions of teaching because teaching quality is the number one indicator of student success in the school. Uh, and, and students are able to, you know, say my teacher meets these standards and is able to explain things to me in ways that I understand and have, uh, you know, is good at questioning and all these types of pieces. So it started there, but then also did a bunch of research on the impact of COVID on teaching and learning and built a well-being product from the ground up. I got to do cognitive testing with fourth graders and talk to, I guess in my time in Australia, I, I had the opportunity to talk to probably over 250 school leaders around student data. That was a really fascinating experience that also gave me some international experience, but also just, again, talking to practitioners, which I was a practitioner and now being able to have the, the opportunity to talk from the other point of view of what does it mean to make something that matters and, and again, both possibly impacts change within a school system. Um, unfortunately, that I know that and over that, like, you know, 18 year trajectory, I didn't really slow down at all. And I have a weird life where I volunteer for vacation um, <laughs> and I kind of did that for a really long time. And so I hit a wall pretty significantly last year and left the role um, in Australia, traveled the world, which is really cool. Um, got to kind of refresh and and uh, get to a place where it was time for, you know, my next role. And I, you know, we, I think when we were doing this work and especially if you're kind of in that stage of your career, like I'd become a CEO and I think in my head, like, what do you do after that? And I can't, I couldn't even believe really that I'd left a CEO position. You know, I didn't have that, that understanding of the next step that I went through kind of the normal process of what do I do? And I've been good at building other people's companies. So I did, I thought about that for a little bit. And then I was like, well, maybe I'll start my own company that was generative AI and started looking into the application of generative AI and well-being. Uh, but the first time I used ChatGBT, I started a company. I started AI for Education uh, just to help get some practical, you know, knowledge out there about what AI was. Because the first time I used ChatGBT, and if you've heard me talk before, I, I hate rubrics. I mean, as not only a teacher, but a former instructional designer and, and someone that built 600 rubrics in 20 months, I am still a broken human being from that, by the way. Like the formatting and... It's so important, but it's also so difficult to do this, especially when you have you want to do this consistently and well for your students. Then when I went to ChatGPT for the first time and I entered write me a rubric, that was my first ever prompt, and it automatically did it in a beautiful table. AI for education was born, <laughs> and it was just like okay, this is a transformational technology. We've been talking about the promise of ed tech. We've never been able to like realize this is potentially the engine for that. But oh my goodness, this is not like better Google. This is something so much more for advanced that was going to require so much knowledge around capabilities, limitations, applications that we need to have some support. So I, I, I built my first website in a weekend back in April, and that's led me to here today and talking to you where I get to have these conversations and hopefully share best practices and resources and training around how to adopt these tools in schools. Yeah. I mean, that's that's awesome. I central to your story was this element I picked up on where 
think trying to drive more equitable outcomes or equitable learning experiences for for students, right? Whether that they be in more unfortunate type of situations that just prevent them from getting access, getting getting the type of care, attention, even just the the resources, right, to uh, learn learn at the, their pace that's more customized to them, maybe. And if anything, I think this new AI wave, well, one, right, we've heard broadly speaking, like, oh, this is like a democratization of technology of of AI and ChatGPT for sure, like put this tech in front of the masses, right? It's such that my parents, my, my grandparents are saying like, oh yeah, I played around with, with this type of, of thing, or I've at least heard about it. So I think when you're at that moment, it's like, okay, some type of inflection point is happening. One thing I'd love to hear more about is especially the the role of AI in this moment and how you're seeing it even today start reshaping the classroom and how teachers are trying to make sense of, even embrace, maybe even reject what's happening in, in AI. Could you shed some more color for that? Yeah. I mean, so... To your point, this is the fastest consumer-facing technology of our, of not just our lifetimes, but of the world's history. It took uh, Facebook almost a decade to get to 100 million users. It took less than six months for ChatGPT to get 100 million users. And so this is a thing in which um, the time scale has is 20x faster. And when Facebook first came out, it wasn't a very good technology, which I, I mean... And so when ChatGPT has come out, it's not a, it also is not a very good technology, which we don't often talk about in the sense that these tools are a year old, essentially, to the place in which they have worked even possibly consumer facing, and they have been launched widely. And this is something that has not also happened. Usually what we do is we wait a bit to beta test, to get feedback, to grow in more, you know, thoughtful ways. And instead, what we've done is we put this transformative technology into the hands of everybody. And so I'm not just talking about the people, the consumers, but like the amount of ed tech that is being built on generative AI is insane. I mean, it's hundreds of tools for lesson planning. It's hundreds of tools for grading and other use cases, like bots for tutoring. There's probably over a hundred that are just like individual education technologists that are building them themselves. And so I think that this is a really interesting time because the balance here is that this is not only brand, brand new, but it also is very, very early. And so I, you know, you don't usually buy something that only works 80% of the time. You also don't usually buy something that can be harmful to you in a very, in a biased or, or, you know, ungrounded stereotype type of way. But we are right now, like, you know, I, I bought ChatGPT for four to be able to do this work. And I use ChatGPT for vision and it essentially kind of, you know, talked about what I looked like and like who I was and like how professional I was and, Said that someone else would be a CEO, not me. And like, I'm paying for that tool to tell me these things. And I say that because when you think about the classroom, the classroom is a really unique place where there are a lot of important interactions that happen there, but it also is only one part of teaching. And so you've got students and if you're a high school teacher, you've got 
you know, five, five classrooms a day, students are moving around, they've got work at home, they've got, you know, internships, they've got what's happening outside of the classroom. And you talked about equity, you've got some parents that are very front footed on technology, some are not. And so what's happening is students are coming into the classroom with all kinds of different knowledge and conceptions of what AI is. And so they, they you know, 84% of people use had already used AI in some way before they even knew it. So it's in your phones, it's in the apps that you use, you know, it's in education technology. So you already have that, but it wasn't in an explicit way. And so now that you have ChatGPT or Snapchat AI, or it's the, the, the meta Facebook and Instagram fake Kylie Jenner or Mr. Beast, like those things are happening in those students' lives. And the character AI is another example where it's, uh, you know, 18 million avatars you can choose from. It's primarily targeted at Gen Z. It's already in the top 200 websites visited in the world. And people spend more than around two hours a day on it. And, and so you already have these tools where kids are using those in those ways that go beyond it's cheating. You know, they're going beyond use my for my homework. So that's what's happening in students' lives. And so, and that's happening pretty unfettered, meaning like it's happening without a real knowledge of exactly what's going on. And then when they get to the classroom, what you have is teachers that are either unaware of these tools that have heard about it, but never used it. Or that they believe it's going to stop, you know, I've talked to a teacher that said she was terrified their students would stop learning because of giving away all that thinking to the AI. You've got teachers that think it's the most important thing that students could possibly learn because the future of work is going to be that. And then you have a whole bunch of people that will get to it eventually. And so you have these two disparate groups that are experiencing these in, in, in ways that are quite different, like most of what happens with kids and teachers in general that it creates this real complexity of trying to figure out how best to support those interactions. And so I think that what you see is a lot of early adopters still, even though it's a year next month that this tool has been released widely, but you still see a really chunky, like early adopters, some teachers really infusing this into their classrooms that are rethinking their pedagogy, that are teaching around AI literacy. But then you have a vast majority of unstructured, like of no structure or no support around these tools and students are left to their own devices. And then you see them using them in a very chunky ways. So I think that all goes to this place in which we're in this really kind of wild, wild west moment in time. You talked about an inflection point. I don't ever remember in my life of having, being a part of an inflection point. And I've talked to some people that can remember certain times where this, you know, someone talked to me recently about cable TV moving from like where, where we went from these big, you know, ABC was the only, you know, these big five or whatever and moving to cable TV that actually felt like an inflection point that things were going to change a lot. But I haven't experienced that. But right now it's so fascinating because it's happening in our schools and it is happening at such an uneven rate and in such a diverse manner that the, and with very little support from policy, from federal government, from even philanthropy or other kind of frameworks, that it's still, again, here is this tool that's transformative and either use it or don't, but like it can't be ignored and, and you just have to figure it out on your own. Would you say that it's been a universally accessible type of tool technology for most people or for students? Because I, one example that comes to mind is as you're seeing these, this rise of AI-generated content, essays, you know, written work, well, in the education setting, right, you, teachers will still want to assess the student's ability to understand topics, you know, from thoughts, long-winded writing. And they're relying on some tools to even detect whether AI was, was used or AI was, was part of it. But the results of that early on is 
that these tools aren't actually that reliable, that they actually perpetuate several biases, especially if you're a non-native English person, speaker, and you're you're writing something, even if you are genuinely writing from your own voice, your work could be flagged as AI generated. So like, has it lived up to the messaging around like, hey, this is now truly democratized. This is universally available, accessible, and useful for everybody. So I'll, I'll take the first part of the question before I get to AI detection, because I have opinions. You talked about hot takes before we started. I definitely have some on those. So universally, it, it, it isn't. So for example, Claude is considered right now, at least um, the second most kind of, the, the second best model out there that people can use, especially around written communication. It wasn't available outside of some like five countries. I don't know the exact number until like two weeks ago, where now it's available more widely. So there's just a geographic component of this. The EU has very strict rules around privacy and around these regulations so that ChatGPT and other tools are not really fit for purpose or po possible within those schools. So we have like a geographic, uh, some geographic issues around this. You then have some access issues. And especially when something like ChatGPT 4, Vision, and Dolly 3 that just released is behind a paywall, those tools like are really interesting and transformative that most people can't afford. You then look at like the like who has access to this as the as students and as teachers. And what you're gonna notice is like everything is that like cultural capital and like the ways in which we, we disseminate knowledge between ourselves that some people that really adopt this, their kids will use it or the kids will get their parents to use it or the other way around. But there isn't any kind of, you know, it, it, we're not at, you know, carrying, we're not at like the capacity where this is a tool that's used consistently and across you know, generations. And I think it's actually a good thing. And the reason I'm going to go to the second part is these tools are the worst they will ever be. And they continue to be the worst they ever be every day. And what that means is that, you know, when we think about this, like these tools are not very transparent, they are not reliable, and they are not fit for purpose for schools. I worked at a legal institute on uh, yesterday and Monday on Rhode Island with a legal, you know, a, a lawyer. And we were trying to write a policy and let him write it first. And he's like talking about like mitigating bias and student privacy and be able to redact student information. And I was like, that isn't possible right now. Like these things are not possible because the foundational models, when I say foundational model, I mean what OpenAI is creating or Meta, the Llama 2, or you've got Palm, which is going to be for Google that powers, um, Palm 2 powers BARD. OpenAI and ChatGBT, they, these systems are really, really not transparent. And so recently there was a Stanford, um, they're doing some great work. They did, they released a foundational uh, model transparency index last week. And it gave people, it gave these 10 foundational models that every generative AI tool is built on, on top of pretty much and said, how does this work in terms of how you created it, the upstream? Uh, how does it work in terms of the model itself and like how you trained it and how it works? And then how does it impact? Like who's using it? How are they using it? Who's building on it? And out of a hundred, can you guess the highest rate? Like what was the highest number out of a hundred? I think it was 50 something actually. 54, 54% at open. It was, it was Lama 2 Meta's open source model. And there were 18 indicators, a lot around training data, which causes bias in the systems around impact usage, downstream effects, 18 of those, not one could do, not one could have had a response to it or did it. And so this technology is so, so brand new, right? It is so 
in this unreliable state that we have to be incredibly cautious about what we do because there are no x-ray glasses to say, hey, Alex, that's AI work. And when people tell you that, they are telling you they're, it's BS. Sorry, there's like no other way to say it. Not only is it BS, there's no true digital signature. And I've talked to some people about that. There's no true digital signature. There's no watermark. There's no ability to like go and say that like anything is truly AI written. There are signals that say this is something that a kid probably didn't do that you would see in normal senses. But what we see is that not only are AI, AI detection tools the same way that the tools are, are unreliable and they have their own biases. So for example, that you said, they more likely penalize non-native English speakers over and over and over again. People that like purple prose or like really try really hard to have the perfect construction, that looks like AI. And that there's anywhere, then the accepted rate from these companies is like 1%. They're okay with it being of you accusing a kid of cheating 1% of the time, that's okay to them, which is in my mind, not okay. And it and actually is like completely damaging. And then the other end between 15 and 20%, false negatives, which means that kids that are good at doing this and are creative and are using multiple tools and rewording are scot-free. They fall, they, they get through every time. So it doesn't it does not mean that they're not, like having you false accused, but the kids that are going to be good at doing this are going to get through every, like most times, I won't say every time. And so I think that this is really important. So we have one sense that, that these foundational models themselves, again, are the worst they will ever be right now. They are not fit for purpose for schools. They're actually not designed for schools. They're not designed for education. Even though the dip in July for OpenAI, everyone's like, oh, the hype cycle, whatever. What they found out is most likely because kids were using it to study or homework. And then it went back up. But they know this is a common use case, but it is not an area of focus. They're not trying to design directly better tools. And these are not fit for purpose. And anything that's being built alongside it around AI detection to try to help teachers catch this inappropriate use are in themselves ineffectual. And so this idea right now of like, like where we are and what we have to think about is like, how do we find the balance between we can't ignore these tools because they are part of our lives and they will continue to be part of our lives and the opportunities and upsides which you talked about democratization of building and being a computer scientist for the first time are enormous. And then the other end though, that the potential harms of these tools, the lack of reliability, the amount of, of, of things that are clearly biased and not just global North bias, but sometimes I feel like they're American biased and that they are gonna be potentially harmful in other ways that we can't understand yet is that there has to be something in the middle like, where do we find the space in the middle where we're teaching about AI literacy and critical use of these tools that people can make good decisions about where the value can be had and where the harm can be mitigated? And if we don't do that, we're stuck. Yeah. One thing I certainly believe that you probably have the most uh, freshest insight in is around how teachers are responding, how new pedagogy are is, is being formed to to right, either incorporate AI into the teaching curriculum, or be aware that AI is likely going to be used by students left and right, and but still want to like uh, achieve good learning outcomes. So I'd be curious to hear like from from as you're talking with educators, teachers, and and everyone, like what what are some of the emerging ways that teachers are trying to yeah, make sure that the classroom is still a good place to, to learn. 
I mean, it's, it's so interesting because it is like such a fascinating time and, you know, teachers were coming off of COVID fatigue. We're coming off from the largest, you know, we're a part of the largest teacher shortages that we've experienced. Schools have not been made a better place in my lifetime. We keep making it a harder place and a more difficult place but for students and teachers. And I think we sometimes forget teachers in that moment where we think we absolutely should be focusing on students, but it, it is it is not a one way place like a, a teacher and a kid work together and the best the best classrooms are where there is a tight you know relationship and interaction and where their where teacher well-being is so a student well-being usually like these things like come together and so right now what's really interesting is that we have we have teachers and and leaders that are taking these opportunities to rethink pedagogy um, and to start thinking about it but I'll start with the kind of low hanging fruit. The low hanging fruit is teachers spend on average, let's say between six and 10 hours a week of doing stuff that has nothing to do with teaching directly. Well, meaning that the moment in the classroom, which is what you're paid for, and you're paid for the, you know, there's prep time that's built into your day. And there's also time for like lunch sometimes. Like, I mean, I ate lunch sometimes as a teacher, not every day, but I, I manage it sometimes and professional development. But what happens is there's a lot of like additional labor around answering emails, communications, paperwork, attendance, uh, these, uh, like supporting students' special needs, which is very important, but takes a lot of time and grading and marking. And so, you know, there are all of these really, really large amounts of work. Like I always say that the teacher's work week doesn't start on Monday, it starts on Sunday. Like you have like usually like your Sunday afternoon is grading papers or planning for the week or whatever. Like you're not even it's it's really not an, a, a you know a nine to three job five days a week you know nine months out of the year. And so the reason I say that is the low hanging fruit seems to be just how do we find productivity gains and how do we collapse the amount of time out of classroom. So the rubric example it could have taken me forty minutes to write that rubric, especially struggling with the formatting et cetera. I can do that in a minute and a half with ChatGPT, and then in five contextualize it for my classroom. Then I have I have saved time. And other places, where about where can I save time? I can save time on that email that I really don't want to answer because I don't want to be a little bit you know test testy about it. Like, can I get a little bit of help in creating something more, you know, more professional and and not as maybe angry as I feel <laughs> sometimes as a teacher? Uh, or there are these opportunities to provide first draft feedback on something or to create really cool lesson plans or activity guides. And I, like we have a prompt library of, of 75 prompts that teachers can use in any, any um, chatbot. And a lot of them, the ones I love are like lesson hooks or exit tickets or these kind of small pieces that really can drive engagement that now I can differentiate because I can have five different lesson hooks when I could only think of one and I can pick the best one or I or exit ticket. My favorite, one of my favorite anecdotes is that it was so good to have, you know, a teacher use one of our tools in Queens and she didn't exit ticket. And so she got like three back and her reaction was not, I'm going to pick the best one, but oh my gosh, I'm going to give all three to my students and I'm let them choose. So she's getting that extra step and, and allowing that to be part. And those are just like low hanging fruit. So there's a lot of tools out there that are doing that work, whether you use the chatbots directly, like with our prompt library or in your own, or you're using these kind of chat GBT wrappers, which we call it in the sense of like their, their opportunity to do um, that work. So there's those, those pieces. And then the next step is like, how are we framing this in classrooms? And so how are we shifting traditional assessments to AI assisted or AI resistant? 
how are we leaning into the actual meaning of the five paragraph essay? Hey, to tell every every English teacher in the world, I am so sorry, but like we're gonna like a five paragraph essay is a construct. There's no reason it has to be five paragraphs. There's no reason it has to be a, a start and end and three in the middle. Have you ever been asked to do a five paragraph essay out of out of high school, Alex? That is I a no. Been, that is... I've been asked to write shorter, <laughs> just like exactly, just get to the point. exactly. Just write your thesis statement in three bullet points, you know, like, and then be able to talk about it. Like that's more of the real world. So how do we take that? And teachers are starting to think about how do I take that that thing that ChatGPT can do better than I can as a teacher potentially, and take that and unpick the learning objectives, the goals, the intentions. And then build it back up in a way that students can use either chat to in responsible ways to help drive their thinking and not just a cognitive offload, but also in ways in which I can't be done by a bot. So I think that that more and more is happening. And you see that in types of assessments, you see that in teachers integrating, you know, these tools responsibly in the classroom by modeling them or letting students use them to like do debate topics or to model conversations or to refine an idea to, you know, create mnemonics that work for them, you know, all kinds of things that are really cool for them to do. And that is where I think it gets really exciting. But there's a huge but here. That is not 50% of teachers. That is not 80% of teachers. That's not even 30% of teachers right now. I think it's much lower than that, unfortunately, because there it hasn't been this real push towards AI literacy for teachers and practical solutions for how to do this the same time and then to actually make the classroom more interesting, authentic, whatever you want to call it. And so there is a missing piece that needs to come not just from will from teachers, but actually through support from the bodies that can say, I'm going to give you an hour a week just to rethink how you're thinking about this or to practice or to try. I'm going to, I'm going to showcase, I'm going to, we're going to build our own prompt library of our best prompts. We're going to showcase the best student use, the best teacher use. I'm going to give a challenge every six weeks for us to come up with the best solution using AI for something. Like there's not enough of that yet to really get to the place where teachers are given the support because they need the support. We should not put this all on their shoulders to actually create a space in which it's valued, which is supported, in which there are actually tools in place to help them build that literacy so that they can make that classroom better. Yeah, no, I mean, that's so many good points. And I'd love to actually really dive more into this. But in the interest of time, one thing I'd love to to allow you to, to do is, uh, you know, you're working on this organization, AI for Education. And, you know, I think, the ambition and the vision is just so all-encompassing and many different things to tackle. But in short, if you were to give the two-minute version of like, what is it you're trying to do, what you seem to hope to accomplish, and even just maybe how people can get involved, what sort of help you could you could receive? Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, for us, you know, we're focused on three things. So AI literacy for across the school community, AI ethics and policy. So how are we using this responsibly? And the third is AI pedagogy. So like that, that is, and, and I think if you do all those three things in concert, they all support each other. So it's a cycle. Like these things, like if you're doing AI ethics, right, you're building literacy, right? And then you're changing, you're creating some spaces in which pedagogy can improve. The same way if you're doing pedagogy, right, it starts to filter into the literacy pieces, et cetera. 
So that's our real focus. And the way that we're thinking about it is through a grassroots approach. So bottom up. So like supporting those early adopters and hopefully less like more and more just people and teachers and leaders through a bunch of free resources. So we talked about a prompt library that's on our website, just AIforeducation.io. Um, and then we've got webinar series. This is our first week, Alex, without a webinar in 20 weeks. So I, um, my mom just sent me a message. She's been to all of them and she's like, what time is it tonight? And I can say, we don't have one, but we have 20 of those and we're about to launch our next slate. Fully free, great professional development. We have a super robust community that's built around it as well. We have a free course, we have free resources. We just launched two in the last three, four days. One is around top, like kind of the top five mistakes educators make with AI and how to mitigate them. And then one around the every framework. So how can you use AI responsibly every time, which is an acrostic that talks about really about everything being like responsible, but it's also you. This is you using this tool, not the other way around. Um, and so we have things like that. And then for the top up, we actually support everything from schools, districts, um, uh, leadership associations. We're on the steering committee for the new EdSafe AI Alliance has been relaunched. Um, and so that's really about driving AI adoption and so we work directly with these organizations to help them do that through workshops and PD. We're launching a train the trainer model because impact is the most important thing we can do. And unfortunately, I am not scalable, nor am I quantum. So I cannot be in two places or three sometimes because I'm really bad at my calendar at the same time. So how can we actually create a space in which we're doing something around those three pillars that you can bring back to your context because it's always going to be better. Like I could be your like cut through your tip of the sphere in whatever way possible or someone from AI for education as we grow. But then how do you, the only way that we're going to see real change management adoption of this is if you actually have that in your school with that capacity built and that, you know, starting to build towards that expertise. So that's what we do. I'm always happy to chat. I'm very on LinkedIn, which is think is how I met you. We've put a bunch of resources up there pretty much every day. But we just really want to support the adoption of these tools responsibly and to and to make sure that we're keeping teachers, students and leaders and the education ecosystem in the middle of this conversation, because we have been ignored too much. They will let us be the major use case for ChatGPT and build us a toolkit with um, with like that has four prompts only and four use cases and a couple FAQ, knowing that we are driving their growth. Like it needs to be more. And the only way we do that is if we we come in together, we raise our voices and we say, this is what we need or we're not going to adopt it because it's not safe. Amazing. That's the best way to, to cap off this podcast. Amanda, thank you so much for coming uh, and just sharing your story, sharing about what you're doing and honestly doing great work for you know equipping our teachers, the future students to really just embrace and be on top of the AI wave uh, that's happening. So thank you again. And you know, would certainly actually love to to keep in touch to to see what what happens in the future for you, even. Thank you so much and I appreciate it. And thanks to everybody out there listening. And you know, you your experimentation, your commitment, your your knowledge, like it, it's all about your use as well. This is this can be democratizing. So and I have one challenge to everybody is like, go try, think through how you can use this and apply this to your own practice in responsible ways and then share it. Go. The only reason AI for education exists is because I decided crazily 
that I had something to say. And then I said it and people have found value in it, but there's so much room for people to have really good ideas about this, to share this right now, because there's no reason that we can't all have a voice in this moment. For sure. All right. Well, thank you, Amanda, and have a great rest of the week. Thank you so much, Alex. Hey, thanks for listening to Humans of AI. If you're building something with AI or are perspectives you want to share, drop me a note at alex.humansofai.xyz. And be sure to subscribe to my newsletter, Chaos Theory. Until next time, this is Alex, Resident Chaos Coordinator. <laughs>